Well, good morning, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. Um, for those of you who I haven't had the chance to meet, which is a lot of you, uh, if you're over the age of 18 and have never ventured up to the youth room over there, my name is James Schultz. I've been the youth pastor here for a little over a year now. And as we're here on Mother's Day, I know what the first thought that probably came to a lot of y'all's mind is. What is this 25-year-old guy who's unmarried, who probably has no idea what motherhood even looks like, what is he doing up here to preach to us this morning? And when I got asked to preach this morning, I had the exact same thought. But it really makes you wonder who's running this place. Um, I did what any self-respecting, smart youth pastor would do. I sought counsel. And where did I turn to to seek counsel? I wanted somebody who was smart, wanted somebody wise, consistent, godly. So I went to my ninth grade boys. And I asked them how they would address their own moms and the moms of GBC at large from the pulpit this morning. And I felt inclined to include a few of their responses. One said, shout out to all the women who get to put up with God's greatest gift every day. <laughs> from another, happy Mother's Day to all the women who put us in this room. This one's sweet. Hello and happy Mother's Day. We are very thankful for our moms and all that they do. I think that that kid's mom actually wrote that for him. Um, <laughs> one of them gave me the sage advice, just throw your mama joke out there. So, not going with that one. Uh, from another, and to be clear, this is not the view of Grace Bible Church. This is the view of a ninth grade boy. Uh, happy Mother's Day, but let's be real. There'd be no mothers without fathers, so happy day to all. And last but not least, shout out to all the moms, especially the youth moms, and I couldn't have said better myself. Um, all joking aside, as someone who has a mother who's actually here this morning all the way from Austin, um, I just want to take a minute to say thank you and thanks to all the moms for all that y'all do. Um, I recognize that it's, it's a gift, but it's not a gift that comes easily. It takes time. It takes sacrifice. Um, so thank you. Y'all are really important. Your mom, you're really special to me. Okay, that was the part of this morning that I was most stressed out about, was addressing the moms. I mean, they're, they're important. I didn't want to mess that up. But now, keeping with GBC tradition, we're actually not preaching about moms this morning. Um, sorry to break it to you if that's why you came. We're going to be continuing with our series in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 21. And as you turn there in your Bibles, um, I'd like to start out by saying and really reminding you that GBC, our pastors and our elders, for each of us, are the thing that we care about most and our deepest desire is we want everyone in this room, from middle schoolers to high schoolers to retirees, parents, moms, empty nesters, what we want for each and every one of you is that you would be actively involved in ministry. And when I say that, I'm not talking about working for a church or being paid to work for a Christian organization what I'm talking about is the ministry that each and every one of us in here are called to as followers of Christ. The call that God has given each of us to get off the sidelines and into the game. As we get into our passage, I want you to be considering if all of us are called into a life of ministry, which we are, what should that ministry look like? How do we know if we're hitting the target? 
the good news for us is our text today gives us a great foundation for answering those questions. So let's turn to 2 Corinthians 5, and I'll start by reading verse 11. Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not committing ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, the first word I read, look back at verse 11. Paul says, therefore. And here's, here's a piercing invite, insight. Here's what the high schoolers of GBC get week in and week out. The word therefore clues us into something. It tells us that whatever comes next refers to what was before. Now that's groundbreaking stuff, so really lock in. And in honor of West, who's currently on a kayak trip, you know, one of those trips, out in North Carolina, I'd like to take a classic question of his. What is the therefore, therefore? And some of the other more sophisticated pastors on our staff, like Michael Brady, have told me that this is a cheesy question, but it works for the big boss, so I'm going to go with it. <laughs> so what did come before? What is this therefore referring to? Last week, we focused on verse 10, and Wes taught about judgment, said that one day our acts, both good and bad, would be weighed, they'd be judged. And that can be a scary thought. In fact, it should probably instill a healthy fear of the Lord in us. And ultimately, what Paul is saying is that those two things combined, that impending judgment and a healthy fear of the Lord, those should combine to motivate us to persuade others. It says persuade others. You might be thinking, why is Paul talking about persuading here? Isn't this letter written to a church that he planted? Isn't this letter to people who love and trust him already? Shouldn't they already be persuading, persuaded? But what you have to remember, we've mentioned this a couple of times over the past few months, is that Paul is writing 2 Corinthians largely to defend his apostleship, to establish and really to reestablish his credibility as a minister of God. The reason why is because there were some false teachers who'd infiltrated the church. Their primary aim was to undermine Paul and to undermine his authority. So what Paul is doing is he's responding to them calling his character into question. Upon first glance, that might seem arrogant, prideful even, that Paul is spending so much time talking about himself. But that's, that's what he's doing. He's giving them cause to boast about him. He's been doing this throughout 2 Corinthians, defending himself so that they, the Corinthians, would be confident in who he is and in his ministry. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever been skydiving before? Anybody? Good number of y'all. Personally, never have. Probably never will. Um, the reality is, it just seems like a really bad way to go if something were to go wrong. And plus, <laughs> most people go skydiving because they're thrill seekers and seeking excitement. I work in high school ministry. I don't need any more excitement in my life. I get plenty of it, I promise. But 
Hypothetically speaking, if I were to go skydiving, I would want the most experienced guide around, a former paratrooper even. And I want to hear all the ways that this guy's going to keep me safe. I'd want to know how many jumps he had done. I'd want to see the certifications. If I'd need to know why I could trust this guy enough to jump out of a perfectly good plane, right? We'd all want that. And that's what Paul is doing here for the Corinthians. He's talking about himself the way that I would want my skydiving guide to talk about himself. Not to gloat, not to beat his chest about his accomplishments, though there were plenty. I mean, this is, this is Paul we're talking about, like the literal Michael Jordan of ministry, uh, but in a way that says confidently, you can trust me. So, even though Paul may appear weak, even though he is persecuted and he suffers, even though his outward appearance, to use the phrasing from verse 12, is nothing flashy, his point is that the Corinthians can put their trust in him. Why? It says in the second half of verse 11, look back, it says, because God is confident in him. Did you catch that? It says, but what we are is known to God. He's saying, no matter what the false teachers say about me, they can call me fake. They can accuse me of being crazy or prideful or weak. They can say that I'm not a real apostle. But no matter what, despite the criticism, my ministry is known to God. And he says, I hope it's known to you too. Now, I let off this passage talking about how this would help us understand or define what ministry should look like for us. But so far, all we've gotten to is Paul defending himself in his own ministry. So what should we be looking for? Like, this isn't very relatable so far, considering the fact that all of you are here this morning, not out planting churches in Europe and Asia. Um, I don't constantly have middle schoolers or high schoolers trying to undermine my authority, except at the middle school lock-in. If any of you middle schoolers are in here, gosh. But <clears throat> what about Paul's ministry should we be trying to replicate? All of what we've talked about so far is pointing us towards verses 14 and 15, where we see what Paul's motivation is and why he puts up with the constant criticism. So if you look back at verse 14, Paul's motivation for his ministry is crystal clear. Why does Paul do what he does? He says it's because of the love of Christ. He doesn't even say because the love of Christ motivates him. He takes this step further to say that the love of Christ controls him. That word controls can also be translated as compels or implores. He goes on to explain. He says that since Christ died for me, for us, I must, we must, you and I need to live for him because we are controlled, compelled by the love of Christ to love others, to serve others, to engage in ministry with others because of his love for us. And y'all, that's the gospel. It's not just that Jesus loved us enough to die for our sins. Yes, that's part of it. But Paul takes it a step further. Christ's love compels us to do the same for others, to die to ourselves day in and day out for the sake of those around us, and to live out the gospel in our day-to-day -day lives. This is what we should be trying to replicate, this motive that we should be controlled by the love of Christ. It doesn't just apply to Paul or to Timothy, or to the apostles establishing the church. It applies to each and every one of us. And look, I get that that seems obvious, right? Nobody who's in here who's a follower of Christ is gonna take issue with me saying the love of Christ should be our motivation. Yes, I get it. But speaking both experientially and observationally, we mess that up 
all the time. Our motives get twisted constantly. And you may not need convincing of this, but if you don't believe me, I would ask you, after church, there's an Instagram page called Preachers and Sneakers that you can go and check out. If you haven't seen this page before, what it is, is it is a page full of pictures and videos of pastors and ministers preaching in $1,000 shoes, designer clothes, wearing watches that cost thousands upon thousands of dollars. And y'all, it's hard to see that. It's hard to see pastors flying in private jets and living in luxurious mansions and not think that somewhere we've got it turned around. And I get that that's a low-hanging fruit example. It may seem like that's an issue in the world of Instagram or out there, but don't get confused. That issue is in Grace Bible Church just as much. We have not cracked the code, nor do we have it figured out. If we're being honest with ourselves, everyone in this room, myself certainly included, is prone to letting the wrong motivations drive our ministry. So with that in mind, what are some of the motives other than the love of God which can drive our ministry? I think it's worth thinking about this so that we can address the problem. Uh, many of you in here this morning are small group leaders or youth leaders or you teach in elementary or you serve on the events team or a handful of other ways within our church. Do you ever get puffed up with pride when you get to tell somebody that you're a youth leader or that you lead a community group at this church? Do you ever get a sense of satisfaction saying that you've been serving faithfully since the 14th Street days, or better yet, since the movie theater days, if you've really been around a while? Are you inclined to say yes to a kayak trip or to leading a small group so that Wes or Travis will think better of you? Let's think about it from a different angle, perhaps slightly more positive. How would your personal ministry look different if the love of Christ was your motivation instead of your desire for approval or your desire to make a lot of money or to be thought of as funny, good-looking, godly, or any of the other self-glorifying traits that we so desperately crave. The reality for me, even as I stand here this morning, is I'm having to fight that as well. Yes, I want you guys to hear from God's word. Yes, I want it to convict you. I want it to change you. I want you to take something away from this sermon. But I also want you guys to think that I'm funny, to think that I'm a good teacher, to think that I'm capable. I want for West to think that the next time seven pastors go out of town, I deserve to preach again. <laughs> so what do we do with this? Is it just part of our nature and we are who we are, nothing we can do about it? No, we need to fight against our sinful motives. We need to pray that God would soften our hearts. We need to be truthful with ourselves and with our community about where our hearts truly lie and actively resist those underlying motivations that distract us from true ministry. The reality about motivations is that most of the time, we're not thinking about what motivates us, right? I don't wake up in the morning and think, okay, because I want to get to work on time, I should get out of bed and go shower. I just go shower. It's what I do. That's how we all operate. But I want to challenge you to let this text make you sit and think about where your motivations lie. What is pushing you in ministry? What are you seeking after? Wrestle with that. Don't just be content remaining the same. Okay, let's look back now to the text and see what Paul's motivations then lead him to believe and do. This next part is probably a little bit more well-known. Uh, some of you, if you're really godly, might actually have some verses highlighted in your Bibles. So get excited because this is for you. Uh, and real quick before we read, what Paul is doing here 
is he's laying out a series of statements that are causally related. Causally related. If you don't know what that means, basically, the statements are a series of causes and effects connected by the word therefore, each one building upon the one before it. I'll give you a quick youth example to help you understand. Robert comes to youth group and doesn't have very good aim with the dodgeball. I hate to say it, but it's true. Nothing against Robert. He's a great kid. Just bad aim with the dodgeball. Therefore, with his first throw, he breaks the light. Therefore, I have to buy a new light. Therefore, Josh, our facilities guy, has to come and fix the light. Do you see what happened there? Each statement built upon the one before it, leading to Josh replacing the light. And that's what Paul is doing here. Um, the whole paragraph is building up to verse 20. Verse 16 builds upon what we just talked about. Verse 17 builds upon verse 16. And verse 20 builds on everything that comes before it. And that's what I want you to be looking for as we read this. Now, let's look back to verse 16 and remember to listen to the therefores. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling us, <clears throat> excuse me, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice that in this paragraph, Paul goes from talking about the motivation for ministry to the message of ministry, the message of reconciliation. To effectively share this message that we've been given, we must first have a proper understanding of the way that God views Christ and the way that he subsequently views us because ultimately we should strive to view Jesus and those around us the same way that God does. So Paul's statement here in verse 16 when he talks about regarding people according to the flesh. This likely refers back to his opponents who were regarding him as such, who were discrediting him because outwardly his ministry wasn't flashy. And Paul says, look, I get it. I used to think this way too. I used to regard Christ according to the flesh. So what changed then? Why does Paul no longer regard Christ according to the flesh? And why should we no longer regard others according to the flesh? If you were paying attention, like I tried to tell you, hopefully your ears perked up when you heard the word therefore in verse 16. And what that therefore clues us into is it tells us why our hearts towards Christ and towards others should be changed. Because, as it says in verse 15, for our sake Christ died and was raised. And so, it's all being causally related one after the other. We get another therefore just one verse later in verse 17. This time, telling us that anyone is, who is in Christ and anyone who has put their faith in him is a new creation. It says that the old has passed away and the new has come. And I don't want to just blow right through this. It's worth touching on what it means that we are no longer regarded by Christ and by God according to the flesh. 
what it means for us to be new creations. So listen carefully because a lot of people don't understand this. What it means is that when God looks at us, he no longer sees us for our sins or for the ways that we fall short of his glory. He no longer keeps a tally of our wrongdoings. Instead, through Christ, he has reconciled us to himself so that when he looks at us, he no longer sees that sin, but he sees righteousness. And it's not righteousness of our own doing or by our own merit. It's righteousness that has been imputed upon us by Christ. And this means that we're forgiven. It means that shame no longer holds a place in our lives. It means that we share an identity in common with all believers. It means that we've been changed from the inside out. And what some people get caught up on in this passage about being a new creation is that even after accepting Christ, outwardly they might look largely the same. And if that's you, or if you've had that thought about someone close to you, I'd have you consider my good friend, my coworker, our middle school youth pastor, Cole McMillan. Y'all, when Cole got saved in college, his outward appearance didn't externally change. He was still the same old goofy guy, talking just as slowly as ever. And if y'all have never heard him talk, y'all, it's slow, let me tell you. It's real slow. Great guy. I love him, though. He's still throwing the baseball around just the same as before. But we can't let this lack of change in outward appearance lead us to believe that, that Cole is not a new creation. Cole went from a life dedicated to baseball. He was pursuing a career, playing pro ball, and now he works at youth ministry in the church. Cole's heart and desires have been transformed. And it's crazy when I hear Cole talk about his life before Christ, it's like I'm talking to a different person. The person that I know now is so different from the person I hear him talk about because in him the old truly has passed away and the new has come. And that's the power of the gospel, amen? Amen. He's the best. But here's the deal. Cole is not an anomaly. We can all think to someone in our own lives whose life has been radically changed by coming to know Christ. This new identity, it's like putting a new engine into an old car. The exterior is the same, but the new car with the new engine is capable of being and doing something different that the old car never could. And that understanding is key to ministry. Not to view and assign value to others based on their outward appearance, or based on how good or bad they are, or whether they're a lifelong churchgoer or recovering addict, or their marital status, or their race, or their political party, or any other quality or factor that we use to ascribe value to people. No, our desire should be for all people to be new creations in Christ, and that is how we assign value to them. After all of this, in verse 20, where the buildup all gets us to, Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. And this image of being an ambassador, it's extremely helpful as we think about what ministry should look like and how we should think about ministry. I'll give you an example. Growing up, my dad would say to me, remember, son, you're a Schultz. And that was his not-so-subtle way of reminding me that I was an ambassador, an ambassador of our family, that I didn't just represent myself, but that my behavior would reflect upon my parents and on my family. And when most parents say that, they're usually saying it as they ship their kid off to summer camp or as they send them off to a sleepover, basically of their way of saying, don't embarrass me, I better not get a call about you. What my dad was saying was that you're a Schultz, you're a winner, 
You need to outsmart every competitor and every other person in the room with you. And it was, it was marginally effective. But back to what that means for ministry. Just as my old man would remind me that I am an ambassador of our family at events and competitions, God sends us as his ambassadors to represent him with our words and with our actions in the world and in our workplaces and everywhere we go. We are just like political ambassadors in that we live in a foreign land, this world, but we belong to a different kingdom. Our allegiance doesn't lie here on earth. Our allegiance, rather, is the kingdom of God. And everything we say, everything we do, whether to our families or to our coworkers or to our friends at happy hours, wherever we go, it communicates something about God. And what message are you communicating? Are you communicating God's message of reconciliation that he wants you to be reconciled to him? Or are you communicating a message of look at me, look at what I've done, look at how well I dress, look at how much money I make, look at the clothes I wear. What message are you communicating as Christ's ambassador? Paul tells us here what our message should be. He says our message is one of reconciliation. We've been entrusted with that from God. And that's a very high calling. It's a lot of responsibility. But it's also a privilege. It's an honor to get to be God's representative here on earth. We get to convey God's message to the world around us, to our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers and even our families. We get to carry God's message of reconciliation and his desire for us to be reconciled to him. To wrap up today's text, Paul gives us one of the best, most powerful gospel messages in verse 21. It says, For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is our message as ambassadors. It is because of our love for God that we implore people everywhere to be reconciled to him, sincerely desiring for the old to pass away and for the new to come. One of the ways here at GBC that we celebrate and remember Christ's sacrifice is through the Lord's Supper and through partaking in communion. So that said, we're going to take these next few minutes to reflect, to pray, to repent if you need to, and if you've never been reconciled to God, just like Paul implores, I implore you to be reconciled. Don't let this message go to waste. If you don't know what that means, come talk to somebody you know and trust or talk to me after church, but don't leave here unchanged. And for now, take a moment to reflect and to pray. When you hear the music, you can come forward row by row to take the elements. And then once everybody's been served, we'll partake in them together. If you're up in the balcony, there should be tables behind you with the elements, and similarly, you can go row by row to get them as well. Pray now.